Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Go ahead. You in the house of God. Go ahead and give him some praise. The psalm that said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Is anyone glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? So as you can see, uh, if you've seen by my Facebook posts and everything, I've been in Florida all week. I got a nice tan from the sun. Did you notice that? I got a wonderful tan while I was down there. Uh, <laughs> I'm always honored to have the opportunity to fill in for pastor uh, when I get the chance and uh, just for what God is doing in my life. So this is uh, something I don't take lightly, and, and, and I'm always honored to be able to hold this kind of office. And I thank God that he would even see something in me that would allow me to do such a wonderful thing. So, yeah, go ahead. So before I start, I just want to pray. I just want to pray over this message. I want to pray over you. I want you to pray over me uh, so that you can help me preach this message and get this word out of me that God had put in me. Heavenly Father, in the name of your son Jesus, O oh God, Father, I humbly bow myself to you, O oh Lord. I, I, I come to you in all humility, as we all do, O oh God. And Father, we just pray that this word, O oh God, that you have instilled in me, O oh Lord, we pray that it would touch each and every person in here. We pray that it would touch each and every life, O oh God, that, that we would leave this place forever changed, O oh God, that we wouldn't be as the same way that we came in, but that we would never be the same after this word that we receive from you today and each and every Sunday as we walk in and out of this sanctuary, oh God. I pray that we take you with us everywhere that we go, Holy Spirit, to do all that you have called us to do, to strengthen us, to be the people and children of God that you have called us to be. Bless this word, oh Lord. Let not this flesh get in the way of what you are going to do in this place today, but let your spirit reign on earth, oh Lord, as it reigns in heaven, oh God, for you are the authoritative uh, God of all dominion, of all the heavens and earth, oh Lord. And we do glorify you and exalt you for who you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to be continuing the Unsafe Places uh, series. And I'm, I'm going to be in, in a place in James chapter 4. Which is the next place that we're going to be going. Started with verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, 13 through 17. Of course, you know by now, if you don't have your Bibles, it's up here on the screen, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, the Word of God says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here for a little while, and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I didn't make this up. This is what the Word of God says. If you do this, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, verse 17 says, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. 
this is one of those principles. The, one of the principles in this passage is one that my, my grandmother instilled in me a long time ago. One of her favorite sayings to me was always, you haven't been promised tomorrow. She would always say, you haven't been promised tomorrow. And what she wanted to make sure was, she wanted to make sure that I knew that it was God that was in control of my tomorrow and not myself. That it was God who was in control of my today and not me. That whether or not I made it into tomorrow had nothing to do with me, but everything to do with God. And I may not have understood that completely as a child, but as I've grown, I've I've learned to come, I've come to learn that and to accept that. Not to, so not to take for granted the life of the one, uh, the one who gives me the life that awarded me to have it for today. And that person is God. I can remember talking to my grandma or sometimes even just speaking around her. And I would be talking to somebody else, and I may be talking about what I'm going to do tomorrow or what I'm going to do the next day or the next week or the next year or et cetera, you know, what I'm going to be doing in the next couple days. And it's funny because she would always chime in. And it's like she, would, she could hear all through the house. She would be in one room, but she could hear you all the way on the other end of the house, even if you was whispering. You couldn't say nothing that she could. It's almost like she had microphones in the house and a speaker in her bedroom. Because my grandmother, was, she was partially handicapped during my teenage years. So she didn't get out of the bed a lot. So it's not like she came up, you know, to you and she was listening to you. I can remember a couple of times I was standing in the living room doing something, and she saw what I was doing, something I wasn't supposed to be doing, and she started yelling at me, LeJean, why are you doing it? And I'm thinking, how in the world do you know what I'm doing in here? And then I happened to look on the wall, and she had this big clock, And the whole clock was like a mirror. So she's looking right at me through this mirror and seeing what I'm doing and and starts chastising me for it. But the thing about my grandmother is you couldn't say anything and she couldn't hear it. So she would hear me talk about what I was going to do next tomorrow or the next week or the next year. And sometimes she would chime in and say, you haven't even been invited into tomorrow yet. How are you going to talk about what you're going to do tomorrow and you ain't even been invited into tomorrow yet? And what I realized about what she was teaching me is that my grandmother had to get, if she got this principle anywhere, this principle that she got had to come from this scripture that James is talking about in 413 as well. Because he's saying that your life is like a morning fall. You don't even know. There's people making plans about what they're going to do next year. They're going to go do this. They're going to go do that. And they're not including God in their plans. And James is saying that you don't even know that God's going to allow you to go into tomorrow to even do these things that you're planning about. So basically what you ought to be doing is asking God, is this what you want me to do? Or, or, or am I working out of my own device and my own plan? See, James is basically teaching the same principles. And it's not that we shouldn't have plans, goals, and aspirations for our lives. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't have plans. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that does a man go to build a house without first counting the cost. So you should definitely have plans. He's not saying that you shouldn't plan. But what the Bible does tell us is that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Right? 
Now, see, that doesn't mean that I'm good, so then God starts ordering my steps. What that means is I can't even become good unless it's him that's ordering my steps, unless it's him that's directing my path. That's what that means. See, because it's when I begin to be obedient to the Spirit of God and he's in, in fall in line with the leadings and promptings of the Holy Spirit, that's when I start walking in his way. That's when I become good. I have to be willing to listen to the promptings and the leadings of the Holy Ghost in order for me to become good, in order for God to start leading me. And then the Bible says that even if I stumble, I shall not fall. And because he will be holding me up with his hand. The Bible says that when I fall in line with his word, when I fall in line with his will, it doesn't matter. Even if I stumble, he doesn't say that, that you won't stumble sometimes. He doesn't say that trouble's never going to come your way. But he says even if it does, because you are lined up with him and his will and you're allowing him to, to lead and direct your steps and to take you on the path that he wants you to go, that even if you do stumble and even if you do fall, he'll pick you right back up by his hand because he's the one that's leading and guiding you and holding you. See, this is a principle that I was taught long ago. See, what James is teaching us is not to be so overzealous about our plans for tomorrow that we forget about the one who holds our tomorrow. That's all they were doing. They were making plans about what they were going to do tomorrow, and they, were, and they were disregarding the one that holds tomorrow. They didn't think about what God had planned for them to do tomorrow. We can't be so overzealous in our plans about the future that we forget about the one who holds our future. Which is why the Bible says, if you think about it, in, in Jeremiah 29 and 11, a famous verse. Everyone in here knows it. I'm pretty sure you can quote it like you can quote your, your, your name and address and telephone number. Listen, well, that was before we got cell phones. You used to could quote telephone numbers. Now you only know them by their name. And somebody asks you their number, you're like, I don't know. Wait a minute. Let me look and see what their number. I just recently had to remember my wife's number. As I, she just come up under my wife and I never really thought to look at it until somebody asked me for it. And they're looking at me like, you don't know your own wife's number? And I'm like, well, I guess not. I just know it as my wife. But I'm going to learn it today. I know it now. <laughs> it's a number that I should know in case I don't have my phone present. And God forbid the paramedics or want to call my wife. And I don't even know the number to give them. Yeah. <laughs> so... We can't be so overzealous about our future, about our uh, plans for the future, that we forget about the one who holds the future. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, this is why God says that I know the thoughts that I think towards you. 
See, God knows the thoughts he thinks towards you. I know the thoughts that I think. Some version says, I know the plans that I have for you. But God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Meaning, yes, I absolutely have a plan for your life, but you're going to have to get in line with my will in order for you to receive it. I know that I got thoughts for you. You don't even know how good the thoughts are that I have for you. But I'm telling you, if you just get in line with my will for your life, stop making your own plans and start asking me what you ought to be doing with your life and then you'll receive everything that I have for you. Blessing upon blessing. Oh, I wish somebody would understand that this morning and stop making pretentious plans because the Bible said that all boasting is evil. That that's all evil. See, right now they're just a thought. But when you decide to obey my instructions, allowing me to direct your steps... Uh, and, and, and my plans will become your plans, and then my desires will become your desires. See, I heard somebody speak about the scripture, the passage in uh, Proverbs just recently, and, and, and it, it transformed the way I thought about the scripture. So I thought I would share that with you. When he, when he, said, uh, when he said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And see, that's what God is saying here, that, that if, you allow, if you allow him to... to to, to direct your steps and to give you instructions on what you ought to do and you obey those instructions. He says, my plans will be your plans and my desires will be your desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and I will give you the desires of your heart. And now what I've come to realize is him giving you the desires of your heart isn't giving you anything that you wish to have done in your heart. That's not how God operates. He's not going to grant you any wish that you desire when he says, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. Even if you think that those desires are good, that wasn't what God was intending when he said that. What he meant by that was is that he will put his desires, and your desires will no longer be your desires. Then when you really start getting in line with God and start, and start uh, delighting yourself in him and start letting him make your decisions and start following him the way that you're supposed to, that he's going to inject the desires that are in him and put them in you so some of those things that you used to want, you won't even desire no more. You'll start desiring the things that he desires instead of the things that you used to desire. And that's what he meant by that. If you delight yourself in me, I will give you the desires of my heart. I will give you my desires and my plans for your life. Jeremiah 29 and 11 goes on to say plans of good and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. So this morning I want to ask you, are you trying to operate out of your own plans and your own will for your life? Or are you seeking to see if they line up with the plans and will of God for your life? I'm going to let that sit for a little bit. Because sometimes you don't even ever realize it. Sometimes you just up and leave one job and go to the next one without prayer. Sometimes you just up and leave one marriage and go into the next one without prayer. You leave one relationship and go into the next relationship without prayer. Without ever seeking if this is what God has planned for you. And that's what these people were doing in James chapter 4. They were making plans about their lives without seeking if this is what God wants for me. Uh, I, I know this ain't popular preaching church, but this is next level preaching. This is next level teaching. I'm sorry, not next level preaching. I ain't no next level preacher. I'm just, 
<laughs> I ain't really nobody. This is next level teaching uh, that we got to start allowing God to order our steps. You want to be married? Great. That's a covenant that God instituted. I, I'm, God's on the side of marriage. You can rest assured that. That's a covenant that God instituted between a man and a woman. So now is the person that you're about to marry, is that the person that God wants you to marry? Because I can tell you one thing, if you're a man and it's not a woman, then that's not a part of God's plan or vice versa. If you're a woman and then that's not a man, you can rest assured that that combination is not a part of God's plan. You can rest assured that. And, and, and I'm saying that because I know that there's Christians, there's people, there's people that go to church that struggle with this. They sit in our pews to struggle with this. You know, and I'm, I'm not speaking out against them or anything like that, but I'm just saying if you want marriage, the marriage that God constituted, then why wouldn't you do it God's way? And then for our heterosexual people as well, is the person that you're going to marry, is that the one that God, have you asked God about it? Because let me tell you, if you marry the wrong person, you're going to be in for a long, either an early divorce or a long marriage. I'm not saying that any marriage doesn't have its difficulties. Of course, they all do. But if you marry the wrong person, you're going to be in for a long, long marriage. Are you sure that this is the person that God wants you to marry? Or do you not care about what God has to say about it? Do you not care what God has to say about the person you're dating? Is that not even at the top of your list? You don't even care what he says. This, this is who you want, and you want it because that's just who you want. And you don't care what God has to say about it. That's an unsafe place. That's an unsafe place. Those are decisions that need to be prayed about. You want to start your own business? Great. Is that a part of your will for life or a part of God's will for your life? Great. God, has not, God doesn't have a problem with you starting business. God don't have a problem with you making money. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to be lenders and not borrowers. God don't have a problem with that. But did you talk to him about it? Did you get on your knees and call heaven and start talking to him about, is God, is this what you want me to do? And if it is, then run with it. If you get a word from God that that's what God wants you to do, then don't be scared. Don't back up. Don't be shy. Just go ahead and press forward and start doing it, and God's going to lead the way. But if it's not, you might be looking to bankruptcy. You might be looking forward to failure if it's not God. Do you feel like you're, you have a calling on your life and you're ready to start up a ministry? great. God loves ministries. Have you spoken to God about it? God says we're supposed to minister to people. But you can be in the wrong ministry. And, and if you're in the wrong ministry, it won't be profitable for the kingdom. 
Because it could be something that God hasn't called you to do. If you listen to me Wednesday, I talked about how people have a calling on their life. And so a lot of times you feel like that you need to preach. Like that calling needs you to come up here, take a pulpit, and take a microphone because you feel that God is about to do something in your life. And you may not know exactly what that is, but you feel like it starts here. Let me tell you that it does not start here. Can God call you to this? Absolutely he can. But you better make sure that he did. You better make sure that he did. Because once you take this and the enemy sees you out trying to talk and trying to witness for God, you can believe he's going to bring everything that hell has against you to get you to stop. And you better make sure that this is your calling and this is what God calls you to do so that God strengthens you to be able to handle what he called you to do because he said that he won't allow anything, he won't allow any temptation to come upon you you can't bear God loves ministry another thing that you need to consider is this your time spoke about this on Wednesday night too is this your time so not only do you need to consider is this the ministry that God wants to have you in see you don't need to be preaching if God if God just called you to a ministry of caring or a ministry of giving or maybe God just called you down to the Salvation Army and he wants you to, to, uh, to just evangelize the people or maybe God is just wanting you to speak to about people at your job about Jesus maybe that's it maybe you're an evangelist at your job and like I said on Wednesday night the first place it's going to start is in your home you need to start teaching your kids and raising them up in the ways of the Lord and maybe you got a husband this wayward or maybe you got a wife this wayward and you need to start putting some scriptures around the house or something like that or you need to start praying harder that might be the first ministry that God's calling you to but but what you need to know is this a ministry that God had in mind for me and also is this my time one of the things that I'm reminded of is when Jesus went to the wedding at Cana and and his mother Mary came to him and said they're out of wine he looked at her and said my time has not come yet so that means that to every start of every ministry, there's a time. And, and you can't go, listen, listen, this is something that I've tried not to do my whole ministry. And people don't understand, some people don't understand when I, when I say that I'm not going to do it. If something don't work out the way that it should work out, it don't work out just right, then I don't press the issue. And, and a lot of times what I say is I'm not kicking no doors open. Because if it's, a one, if it's a door I'm supposed to go through, then God's going to open it for me. I'm going to be able to walk right into this door. If it's one that I'm supposed to walk in, it's mine. And can't nobody take it away from me. God will open it for me, and I'll walk right through it. But if I start forcing and trying to kick doors open, that's when I get into an unsafe place. When I get into a place that God hasn't called me to be. When you think about this, I think about, and this just came to my mind, the, the seven sons of Sceva. And you know how they went and they tried to cast out a devil. They went and they tried to cast out a devil, and they, and they said that we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches about. See, it may not have been that they weren't ever supposed to have a ministry of casting out devils. It could have been that they just wasn't ready yet. It could have been that it wasn't their time. Maybe they need to do a little bit more Bible reading. As a matter of fact, they're addressing Jesus as the Jesus whom Paul knew. Maybe they needed to know Jesus for themselves a little bit before they tried to get mixed up in this ministry and start fighting against these spirits that's going to be coming against them. So most of you know the story. 
the spirits looked back at him and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, you have no power. You have no authority to speak over me because you don't know Jesus. All you know is the Paul that preaches about Jesus. All you know is the Albert that preaches about Jesus. But do you know Jesus? I'm not even going to get into it because I'm going to be easy on you this time. Last time I was here, I preached real hard about sin. And I ain't going that way. All right? So this is the problem that James was addressing. That we, the children of God, start making our own plans and devising our own wills for our life instead of praying and seeking God's plan and his will for our lives. Now, I love the way... I, 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 I don't know what she put up there, but I know that I read it from the New Living Translation. A lot of times I read from the New Living Translation because I know that it's easier to understand. But I love the way that James uh, asked this question in the King James Version. He says, what is your life? What is your life? And now we know just like in the beginning of this chapter, uh, beginning of chapter 4, this is just another rhetorical question that James is asking. We know that James is going to answer this question, in other words. We know that this is a question that James is asking, and then he's going to answer this question before you can answer it. But just take a second to think about if James actually let you ponder this question. What is your life? We got a lot of people in this room, a lot of different ages. I'm sure some of you, we got some of you that are just starting their lives, you know, that are, whoo, you're 18, you're 20-something, you're out of your parents' house, you're about to really start. Yes, you are. Yeah, you're about to start life. You don't know it yet. You think it's all about fun, but you get ready to start life. Yeah, absolutely. Some of us are in the middle of our lives. You know, some of us are in that midlife crisis, they say. And then some of us probably feel like we're at the end of our lives. So I imagine when you think about that question, what is your life, we would have all kind of different answers to that question. Some of us would have accomplishments that we want to do, some that we did, and some of us that are older or felt like we accomplished everything that we needed to accomplish, and now we're just waiting for this life to pass by. What is your life? King Solomon, who was considered one of the wisest people on earth, or the wisest person on earth, pondered this same question. And as he began to formulate answers, he explored them to see if they could add meaning to his life. In the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 1 and 13. I'm going to turn to it in my Bible. I know it's up there on the screen. I'm going to turn to it in my Bible. In Ecclesiastes 1 and 13, this is what Solomon said. He said, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under the heaven. So this is what he's saying. But Solomon was known as the wisest person that ever lived. 
So what Saul wanted to know was, is, is, is the question of what is my life? If I have wisdom and knowledge of everything, does that complete my life? Basically, this is the question that Solomon is asking himself. What can I do that would make my life feel complete and it would not make me feel so empty? And the answer, one of the answers that he came up with was, if I just had wisdom. So he said he tried to understand everything that was done under the heaven. How many people today think that their life is complete if they know how to study the stars and the moon and the planets and the universe and then they can disregard God and, and, and elevate science instead of God? How many people fall under this category? And this is what he said in verse 16. He said, I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the other kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this was like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. So Solomon learned that it wasn't knowledge and wisdom that could give him fulfillment in life. Because when you ask yourself, what is your life? You're saying, how do I get fulfillment in my life? And in chapter 2, he decides to try pleasure. Oh, we've all tried that, didn't we? I know I did. I might be the only honest Christian in here. I know I tried pleasure. I tried to get fulfillment in my life to let my life be divine by, to be defined by pleasure. And this is what he said. I've said to myself, come on. Let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. This too couldn't fill me. This too left me void. And then in verse 4, he said, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kind of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herbs and flocks. Many, uh, more than any other king who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. He said, I had everything that a man could desire. I, I, I really explored this thing called pleasure. I drank my share of drink. I smoked my share of smoke. I slept with my share of sleep. I did everything. I had riches. I had money. I See, a lot of people think that if you get rich, your life's going to change. See, a lot of people think that if I just get enough money, if I'm just rich, then I'll be better. But you can be poor and have perfect peace. 
Some rich people are looking at you thinking, some famous people are looking at you thinking, I wish I could just go back to that. That I can just go in Walmart and not be bothered. That I can walk down the street and nobody want to tackle me or ask me for an autograph. I wish I could just go back to that sometimes. Some football players don't even hardly take their helmets off. They hope you don't even see them on the sidelines so you don't recognize their face. And you think if I could just have what they had, I would have everything I want. But Solomon's saying I had everything. And it was still all, it still left me empty. It still left me. You know why it still left him void? Because the only thing that can fill us is Jesus. The only thing that can complete us is Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Everything else will still leave you empty and void and wondering what you're missing in life. And your life is not a mountain to what you wanted it to be. And the whole reason that it's not is because you don't have a relationship with the one that can fill your heart completely. And that's Jesus. This is what Solomon understood. And in verse 2, 24 through 26, this is what he said. He decided something. He says, so I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. All of these things that I want. I decided that, that, that just food and drink. That out of food and drink and work and all these pleasures, they all come from God. So why am I neglecting the God that's given me everything? Why am I keeping the God out of my life that awards me every blessing that I have? See, you don't realize that's, that's what James is trying to teach us. You don't know whether or not that you're even going to go into tomorrow. So just be happy that God allowed you to live today. Make the most of today and use it to glorify your God that blessed you with today. See, we like to idolize things. We take things that God gives us to bless us, and we elevate them over God. And I mean things that are supposed to be important to us, too. Things that God gave us that he gave us to take care of, like children. We're supposed to love our children. We're supposed to take care of them until they're a certain age. And then even after a certain age, we're, we still do, you know, whatever we can to help them out. Because they were still our responsibility in a way. But when we get in an unsafe place is when we elevate those children over God. See, I know nobody thinks they do that. But more of us do it than we like to admit. We start elevating the blessing over the blessing. We start elevating that job. Over the one who gave it to us. So when the boss says, can you work Sunday? Sometimes it ain't even that you had to work. You just didn't even ask the boss if you could have that day off. You didn't let the boss know how important it was to you for you to be able to go to church on Sunday. You're telling us that you're, 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 going, you're telling us here at church that you had to work Sunday because that's what your boss told you to do. But really, your boss, if you had just asked him and said, hey, I can't work Sunday. I got to go to church. He might have said, OK, I'll see if I can find somebody else. But but you elevated your job 
over your God that gave you the job. There's a few lessons that I learned, and I'm almost out of your way. There's a few lessons that I learned from this principle that was taught to me as a boy when my grandmother used to tell me that tomorrow isn't promised to you. And still right now, as James is telling me, that my life is but a vapor. And the first one, I know it's it's sad. It's it's one that nobody likes to think of. You know, it's, it's definitely one that some people don't like to accept. And I know people don't like to accept it because I'll get a prayer request to pray for your 110-year-old grandma that's on hospice. She got to die sooner or later. Just let her go. She has to die. I I know that, that sounds harsh, but she can't live forever. Just let her go. She's 110 years old. She can't even walk straight. She probably wants to go. You keep holding her back from your prayers. You keep stopping God from taking her with your prayers. She probably wants to go. So I know this is one of the subjects that even though we know what it is, we don't like to accept it. That death is inevitable. This is one of the things that, that, that when my grandma taught me that I learned it as a small child. From Just from learning this, that tomorrow isn't promised to me, I learned that death is inevitable. And not only did I learn it, but now I've come to a point where I've accepted it. Hebrews 9 and 27 says, just as, uh, just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You're destined to die once. It said it's a, it is appointed unto man, the King James Version says it is appointed unto man once to die. You have to die. I myself, and I ain't saying that everyone else needs to take this conclusion. I myself, of course, there's things that I would like to see. There's things that I would like to do. But I also take the stance of Paul. And what Paul said in Philippians 1 and 21, he said that to live is Christ. But to die is gain. Because I'm saved. Now listen, if you ain't saved in here, then you better not be in no hurry to die because you ain't going to go to a place that you like. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I told you I wasn't going to preach on sin, so I'm just going to leave that right there. But me, myself, I know what I have looking forward to me. I know what I'm about to go to. So I take the position of Paul who said that uh, I take the position of Paul who said that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And Paul made the statement. He said, so therefore I'm in a straight betwixt. Whether or not I should stay here, which is more needful for you, or go to Christ. But to go to Christ is far better. To be a surrounded, to be surrounding that heavenly throne Worshiping my Lord and Savior is better than anything that this world has to offer me. Listen, I understand that there's, that, listen, there's people I want to see get saved too. Listen, I understand that. There's people that I want to see get saved too. 
But I understand that I don't have to see them get saved in order for them to get saved. Can I tell you that I'm a product of people that prayed for me and never, never once see me pick up a microphone and preach the word of God? They never see me bow the knee to Jesus. They don't even know that I turned my heart to him. They've died and gone on now. But let me tell you that that did not stop God from answering their prayers for me. That didn't stop me from answering their prayers. That didn't stop God from answering their prayers. I know that I don't need to see somebody get saved. Whenever the Lord wants me, I'm ready to go. And another thing I realize is that God can take care of my family. I know, especially as a man, we're providers. We're protectors. We think we got to do it all on our own. We're the ones that have to do it. Uh-uh. No. God can do it better than we can. Trust me. He don't need you. He don't need you to take care of their family. See, the problem that we have is that we view death as a sad and gloomy subject that makes us feel like we're suffering something, like we're suffering a loss of something, like we're losing something. But like I told you, Paul said that we're not losing those of us that are saved, those of us that are going on with Christ, we're not actually losing. We're gaining. We're gaining. We're not losing a thing. We're gaining. And can I remind you also that the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. We got hope. If you heard me speak Wednesday night... I spoke about how we are Gentile. I'll probably speak about it every Wednesday. About how we are Gentiles and how we ought to be thankful for what God has given us. Because the Bible says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Uh, that we should show forth the praises of him who had called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then it goes on to say that who once did not obtain mercy. There was a time that you didn't have hope. We were without God, and with, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says we were without God and without hope in this world. There was a time that you didn't have hope, but when they stretched him high, and when they stretched him high and hung him wide, then Jesus died on that cross for us, and then he was risen up again, and then he ascended to glory. He said, I'm going to send you back a comforter, an Erlos Paracletos, one just like me that'll come in you, he'll teach you, he'll reside in you, he'll remind you of everything that I have taught you and you have this hope that you can hold on to. We once were a people not of hope but now we have become a people of hope so therefore we don't suffer like those who have no hope. Now that we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior I'm glad to say that my last breath here will be my first breath in glory. My last step here will be my first step there. I'm telling you you'll find me up there if, matter of fact if you come up there and try to tap me on the shoulder I might not even respond to you. I know that there's people that want to see their great grandmother and their great-great-grandmother and their mother and their children, but I can't wait to get in front of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and give him the praise that he is worthy of. I don't want to see one person before him. I don't want to see one person before Jesus. We don't suffer like those who have no hope. 
See, I remember back in the day, right, people used to get excited about the coming of Jesus Christ, about Jesus coming back. You remember that? You remember that? That was a great teaching that I don't hear being taught no more. As a matter of fact, I don't even know when I heard the last person say Jesus is coming back other than my uncle. I got an uncle, uncle that sold out to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus saved him. Jesus released him from, a, from homosexuality. He had, been, he had been a homosexual for years. Jesus saved him and released him from that. And I can remember when he, when he first said to me, he said, LaShawn, I'm starting, to, I'm starting to look at women and they appealing to me. He said, that didn't happen before. I don't know how, <laughs> you know. I don't know how um, that you didn't feel that way before, but whatever the case, we know that the enemy was binding you, so you didn't feel that way before. But he said, I'm starting, and he'll look at somebody, and he'll say, I wonder if she could be my wife. I wonder if that one could be my wife. And he started looking at things in a different way. And my uncle's the only one that I've, lately, that I've heard actually tell someone, Jesus is coming back. He's a big track hander out there. He goes to gas stations and stuff like that. He hands out tracks, and he says, you know, Jesus is coming back. You know, Jesus is coming back. And that used to be a huge preaching point back in the 80s and the 70s and, and maybe even the 90s. But I don't hear much of that no more because now we more, we're, we're, we're more uh, 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 motivated speakers and, and uh, uh, self-help counselors, it seems like, when we preach the Word of God, when you hear the Word of God preached. But, 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 but nobody is telling people anymore that Jesus is coming back. I can even remember that back in the 80s, there was a, a song by Al Green. You remember that? And the song by Al Green, it was on a secular radio station. This wasn't even K-Love or anything like It was on Whammo, for those of you that are around here. It was on Whammo. You remember that song? He's coming back. Like he said he would, everything is going to be all right, right? He's coming back for the true and good. That's what Al Green was singing, and that was on whammo. That the whole country had an idea of thinking that one day Jesus is coming back. You couldn't get away from it. You turn on a radio station and hear about how Jesus is coming back. Now I don't hear nobody besides my uncle, including myself, tell a lot of people, that Jesus is coming back. This week I want you to tell five people wherever you are, Jesus is coming back. I ain't talking about just sinners. You can remind some church, some church folk forgot. That he, and, and, and because they forgot, he's going to be coming like a thief in the night. They ain't going to be ready for him. They're they, they going to be the five that didn't feel their oil before the bridegroom came back. Some church people don't know. You ain't got to tell all unbelievers. I ain't telling you to get in a huge fight or a big conflict. But tell somebody this week, he's coming back. Remind them that Jesus is coming back. This is what the Bible says in John. He says, in my father's house there are many mansions. If there were not so... I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to receive you. So that where I am, you may be also. Is anybody looking forward to Jesus coming back? I got one more question before I move on to my next point. Or have we all gotten so comfortable with this world that we're hoping 
that he holds off another year or another month or another 10 years. And we blame it on stuff like, I want to see so-and-so graduate. Oh, I, oh I, I, I want to see my grandkids get their degree. and their de That degree is going to be worthless when he comes back. Let me tell you that. It ain't going to hold no weight. If they get that degree and on the next day that eastern sky splits and that leg steps through there to call us back, that degree is going to be worthless to them. I don't need to see one more thing because I know that God is in control. Second point is, God wants us, wants to commune with us. See, th this is the reason. See, this is what, this is what James said in, in James 4 and 15. This is what he said. He said, if the Lord, he said, what you ought to say, all right, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will go and do this and do that. So what he's saying is, is that God wants to be in communication with us. Because how else are you going to, the only way that you're going to know God's will for your life is through prayer. The only way that you're going to know God's will for your life is if you're speaking to him, right? That's the only way that you're going to know his will for his life. Uh, 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 Philippians 4 and 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things. With prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In all things, let your requests be made known unto God. God wants us in constant communion with him. And I'm not going to explain that point too much because I'm getting ready to get out of your way. He wants us in constant communion with him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. The last point that I have to make to you is that God is sovereign. This is probably a point I make every time I preach. I probably use this point every single time I preach, that God is sovereign. Because I'm absolutely sold out to the idea that God is sovereign. I'm sold out to the idea. I'm sold out that God is the, is the, uh, the maker of life and the giver of death. I don't believe, even if you wanted to kill me, I don't believe that you could unless God gave you the okay. Unless God decided that it was my time to go. If not, then there's anything that can happen. We heard countless stories about people that OD'd, and then all of a sudden somebody comes along and revitalizes them and brings them back to life. We heard people going to shoot people in the head, and then a gun jamming just long enough for that person to get away. I seen a picture of a man with a knife all the way through his head, and somehow missed every major artery, and, and, and he still lived, and he's still alive today. I believe that God is completely sovereign. So when things, and when I see things happen, <clears throat> it must have been okay with God for it to happen that way. I know that's hard. I know that's hard to believe. I know that's hard to receive. That's hard to understand. But God is sovereign. God is in complete control of everything. 
And God wants to be in control. He wants you to give him the authority to be control of your life. Because he's not going to strong arm you to do it. He ain't going to hold you down, put his knee in your back, and make you say uncle. He ain't going to strong arm you to give him authoritative authority of your life. He wants you to give it to him willingly. God is sovereign. Deuteronomy 32 and 39 says it like this. Look now, I myself am he. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. He says, I am the one. I am sovereign. I rule and reign. I created the earth, and I can do as I will. Who's going to tell God what he can and cannot do? That's what he said to Moses. He said, I'll have compassion on who I'll have compassion, and I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Who are you to tell me who I should have compassion on? I'm God. That's what he said to Job. He said, Job, I'm going to question you now, and I want you to tighten up your bridges and listen to me. Was you there when I stretched the ruler across the earth? When I created the planets? When I done all of this and put everything in the orbit? Where was you at? You wasn't there because I haven't created you yet. Because I'm the sovereign God who rules and reigns over everything. And this sounds like a scary verse. Listen, I know it sounds scared. It's, it's Old Testament God. I know it sounds scared. But, but, but his word is eternal, right? It's Old Testament God, but his word is eternal. The Bible says that all, all scripture is profitable, right? And I know it's Old Testament God. And we hear pastors say a lot that God needs to go old school sometimes, right? I don't really agree with that. Because if God go old school... I know that the book of Numbers says that you can sin unintentionally. That God is so holy that you can sin and not even realize that you sin. Because he's that holy. And I don't want him to be opening the earth and swallowing people. I get swallowed up too because he done went back Old Testament. And I done did something that I don't know or something that I do know. And haven't repented of it yet. So I, I ain't real comfortable with God going back. To be an Old Testament, Old Testament God. Because I don't know what might happen to me if he goes Old Testament God. I might be the one that, that gets struck with lightning if he goes Old Testament God. Because I, I ain't perfect. But although this scripture sounds scary, it sounds like you should be afraid of God. Which the Lord does say the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, but when he talks about that fear, it's not a fear as in like you're scared. It's, it's, it's a deep reverence and respect for God. It's that you understand that you are approaching the presence of holiness. And that's one of the things that we lost in the church. That we've promoted love so much that we've started degrading holiness. Because although he's a God of love, the Bible says that God is love. 
And God teaches love, and God wants us to love, and God says that people will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. That's how people will know that you're my disciple, is what Jesus said. But in, in that love aspect, we can't lose the sight of his holiness. Because 1 Thessalonians 4 and 7 says, I have, I, I, I have not called you to uncleanness, but unto holiness. He says, be thee holy as I am holy. I want you to be holy too. So we know that God is holy. And we lose sight of that. And we think that this God of the Old Testament is something that we ought to be afraid of. He says, I am no other God. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. When you think of God killing, you think, oh, he's such a loving and merciful God. How could he do that? But like I said, God is a holy God. And we think that this is a reason that we need to be afraid of God. But can I tell somebody that because of Jesus Christ, because of what he did on Calvary, because of what he did on that cross, because of the empty tomb, because he is seated next to the Father in glory, forever making intercession for us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of God because God loves us. And, and, and what he said is, he said, I have not given you the spirit of fear, to, uh, the, the, the spirit of bondage again to fear. But he said, I have given you the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. Father, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So that means that we can come to God like he's a father. Although we know that he's holy, we know that he's loving, but he's also our father. And because he's our father, this is why it makes it so important to know that he's sovereign. Because he loves us. It's why so, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him uh, should have everlasting life, right? Because he loves us, this is why we can have comfort in knowing that he's sovereign. We can rest in the fact of knowing that God is in complete control no matter what the outcome of the situation is. Is anybody glad that you can do that? And I ain't, trying to, I ain't trying to solicit a clap from you. I just really want to know, like, deep in your heart. Is anyone glad that God loves you? That he shed his love towards you? That he loves you? That you who were once not a people have now become the people of God. You who did not obtain mercy have now obtained mercy. You were, who were without hope and without God now have obtained God. And what are you going to do with it? Is anyone happy that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who holds all things together, the God who has all control, who is sovereign in his rule and reign, loves you and counts you an heir to his kingdom with Christ Jesus.
There's a book, there's a story in the book of Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, he says, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And Jeremiah said when he got there, he saw the potter on the wheel. And he was shaping the clay. He said, but the clay wasn't exactly the way he wanted it to be. It wasn't everything that he wanted out of the clay. So he said that he crushed it. And he put it back on the wheel and started over again. And God said, just like he told Israel, he said, just like the clay is in the hands of the potter, so you are in my hands. So to understand that God has complete reign, control, and rule, and authority over everything, and to know that I am in his hands makes me feel very good to know that there is nothing that can come against me that God can't take off of me. There is nothing that the devil can do to me that God can't reverse. There is no outcome or situation that God can bring against me, that, that the devil can bring against me, that God can't change. Look at somebody and tell them God's in control. Listen, say, don't worry. Don't worry. I know that you dragged all of that stuff in here with you this week. I know that the devil been beating up on you, that you might even feel like you've been defeated. He might have told you that you're defeated. He may have told you that you're not going to be able to do this or you won't be able to do that. You're not ever going to get better. Those kids will never get saved. But can you look at somebody and tell them, don't worry because our God is still on the throne. Tell somebody he's still in control. He's still in control. No, 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 no. That was weak. That was weak. I saw your faces. That was weak. I want you to look at somebody and tell them like you believe it. God is still in control. It don't matter what you dragged in this place. It don't matter if he left you, if he walked out of your life. It don't matter if those kids are running amok. I'm telling you, I was a kid that was running amok. And it looked like it wasn't going to get no better. They was praying for me, and I was in the county jail. Then they was praying for me, and I went to prison for 11 years. Then they was praying for me, and I told them I don't care about this Jesus that you're talking about and they kept praying for me and I told them I don't want to hear that mess no more but can I tell you that their prayers never their prayers kept God continuing to chase me every day after every day after every day because God is in control the devil ain't in control of your kid the devil ain't in control of your house the devil ain't in control of your job. Can I tell you that God is still in control? Is anybody happy that God is still in control? Now will you please look to your neighbor and say, don't worry, God is in control. He said, I got you in the palm of my hand. One more story I want to share with you because I love this story. King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It talks about King Hezekiah. And it talks about these armies who had, who had brought themselves together to come against the king. To come against the king in Israel. <laughs> king Hezekiah was afraid. He didn't, have enough, he didn't have enough soldiers to fight all of these armies. <laughs> they didn't ganged up together and they're about to come against him. He didn't know what to do. So he called a prayer meeting. <sighs> he called a prayer meeting. And while it was at this prayer meeting, there was a young man named Jehaziel, I think. I think his name was Jehaziel. 
There's a young man named Jehaziel. And he said to them in that prayer meeting, one of the scriptures that we all know is probably written on, written in a bunch of people's house on plaques, hung up on doors. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. He said, don't worry about it. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. What he was saying was God is in control. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And then he goes on and he keeps talking. And this is the part I love. Because he tells them to go down in the battle. You're going to go down and you're going to face these armies. You're going to look these, you're going to stand in a place where you're going to be getting ready to battle and you're going to face these armies. You're going to look them right in their face. You're going to look your devil right in your face. You're going to look that devil, when that devil that told you that your kids will always be wayward, you're going to look him right in the face. That devil that told you that this marriage is ending in divorce, you're going to look at him right in his face. He says, you're going to go face to face in him in battle. And then what he said is, he said, but when you get there, I don't want you to do nothing. He said, when you get there, I want you to stand still. I want you to stand still so you can see the salvation of the Lord. He says, don't worry about doing it. I'm going to do it for you. I don't even want you to fight. All I want you to do is stand still. So I'm telling somebody today that whatever you dragged in here, whatever the enemy has made you feel like you lost, today is the day that you're going to take back everything that the enemy stole from you, and you're not going to do it by strength nor by might, but by his spirit, saith the Lord, you're going to stand still. I want you to get into that battle and stand still. This altar is open if you need it. This altar is open if you need it. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord.